this is this is the apologetics and evangelism class. Um, there's a parenthood class happening downstairs, and then a, a newcomers uh, gospel partnership and baptism class. So, if you're new, you're interested in a membership, that's the class you're supposed to be in. If not, stick around here. Um, I think you have a handout. Did Jared give pass the handouts around there? Yeah. If not, there might be some in the back. Um, but yeah, you can you can follow along with that. I'm going to open just in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in here. Let's pray together. So, Father, as we come again to your word, we ask that you would equip us, that we might uh, see once again the goodness and the majesty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would be even filled with the Spirit to give a defense, to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and returning, and that this would be our focal point, we ask, that you would help us now to think on these things and to apply them in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, I want to think through some core biblical, uh, even theological foundations, some core convictions that I think will shape a, a biblical methodology of apologetics and evangelism. So we're doing the foundations. We're going to keep working on these foundations, building it. And then, as I said last week, then we're going to start looking at some of the kind of the, the hot button issues maybe that you've faced People have asked questions to you, things like, why should I trust the Bible? Why should I believe in miracles in the face of modern science? Um, all, all that kind of stuff, even creation, evolution, some of that kind of debates that many of you have been engaged in, and to think through them from a biblical perspective. But in order to do that, we need to have a biblical foundation. So theology, it matters. I know a lot of you, you're into theology, you like reading books, you're studying, you come here, you come to the different events that are uh, offered here to study the Bible, uh, to think together on these things. So you know it's important, but just to reinforce that theology is important not just as an abstract discipline, but because it informs our practice. It informs our practice. So even as we think of the debates between, you know, Arminians and Calvinists, that classic debate, well, those are actually very important. I've talked to a number of missionaries who kind of are all over the world, and they say it's actually quite challenging to be on the mission field in particular, to, to engage with unbelievers when you have these you know, significantly differing theological systems, theological commitments. Now, this is not to say that you have to be theologically reformed in order to be a Christian. There's many faithful believers who would differ on us, uh, even in terms of our soteriology. But we strive for a consistently biblical uh, and theological apologetic and evangelistic method in order to, uh, to follow, basically, what the Lord has laid out. Because methodology matters. Methodology matters. And that methodology is going to stem from what we believe about God, what we believe about the people that we're engaging with, what we believe about their need, their state, and then our place in the world. Why has God put us here at this place, at this time, at this juncture in history? Well, we need to look to the Scriptures to, to consider that. And so this morning, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 as we begin. It's a bit of an odd passage as you think of apologetics. Um, but as I was, I was talking with Julie on the way in here today, oftentimes apologetic discussions can get very philosophical, and there's a place for that. People like to engage in debates about philosophy and philosophical terms, but I find that to be often very abstract, very difficult for people to grasp. Um, so, so I think there's wisdom in looking at even the the biblical illustrations that are given to us, even by Jesus himself, for how we are to go about the work that we're called to, defending the faith and proclaiming it. And so Luke chapter 5, this is an event that uh, Luke, he accurately records, where Jesus, he puts the accent on his authority and his omnipotence, his power, and the nature of the mission that his disciples were called to embark on. And so what he does is, uh, you'll, you'll remember and we'll look at it here, Jesus is calling his disciples to set aside their fishing nets 
and to go be fishers of men, which you see there in, uh, in verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. But he uses this event, this, this miracle on the sea, to show them the nature of the mission that they're about. And so I think that there's some helpful, even concrete illustrations that maybe would help us in shaping some of these core convictions. We're going to look at Luke 5, and then we'll look at some other passages, Acts 17, and others as well. Um, but, but the key here that I want to emphasize right out the bat is that Jesus is making it very clear that his disciples are to do, as others have said, they're to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way and then wait expectantly for the Lord's results. Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way and waiting expectantly for the results. And so th- that's actually very pivotal is that as we think about apologetics, it's not just a free-for-all. We're not free to just come up with our own methodology just as we're not free to come up with our own methodology for evangelism. We need to bring ourselves in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and go about his work in his way, which is the lesson that Peter and these disciples had to learn right off the bat. And so it's very key that we think about how the Lord would have us work um, as apologists and as evangelists. Now there's a few observations from this text that I just want us to pay attention to this morning, um, which I believe I think will serve us well in kind of laying this foundation. So let me, I'm just going to read Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, just stop there. You see that the Lord Jesus, you know, the bait that he's using, what is it? Is he using all sorts of gimmicks trying to just get people in the door? Well, no. Jesus is going around, and his ministry is one of preaching the word, and of of course, in preaching the word, he's pointing people to himself as the fulfillment of that. But it was the word of God, fundamentally, that was attracting these people. And so I think it's just good for us to stop here for a moment and think, okay, as we consider then the call to apologetics, to evangelism, it actually must be very word-centered. We're not trying to just bait people. It's not the the bait-and-switch move, right? We're, We're actually bringing the word of God to them and trusting then the sufficiency of the word, not only to save people, but to even draw them to an interest in Christ to begin with. So we'll, uh, we'll just continue on in verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So just let's begin then as we think about these five core convictions. So the first there on your sheet is the creator creature distinction. So very clearly, you know, the the height of this story in Luke 5 is the miracle, the the catch of fish, and then the summons to go and be catching men, right? But this miracle on the sea, well, really really what it emphasizes is at the most basic level, this creator-creature distinction. Jesus here is actually showing his authority over even the fish of the sea, And the principle there is that as he has authority over the fish of the sea to bring them in, he also has authority over all people, and he's going to bring in those of God's elect. But you see there this fundamental distinction between the creator and the creatures. 
So Peter, he was confronted with the authority and power of Christ Jesus, the Lord, an authority and power that belong to God alone. For who has authority over the fish of the seas except for the Creator? And who has authority to command people to follow Him? The Creator, the one who made us, right? And that's why Peter then falls down and says, Depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. Now at this point, Peter didn't have a full understanding of Christology. You know, it wasn't, he was still learning about who Jesus was. This was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And yet, Peter spoke better than he understood when he addressed Jesus as Lord. Because as we go throughout the rest of the scriptures, we see, oh yeah, when Jesus is identified as the Lord, we're to be thinking of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the creator, Lord of the universe, the sovereign one. And so he recognized, though, here Peter recognized that Jesus was in a category of his own. He's the creator, we are the creatures, and must submit to his instructions. So the creator-creature distinction is fundamental because it shows us that all of life must be lived then in humble submission to God and his knowledge of the facts. And that stands contrary to the nature of mankind who want to exchange then the worship of the creator, the one true and living God, for other created things as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. So those of you who are familiar with the, um, the presuppositional uh, method of apologetics, which is popularized by a guy named Cornelius Van Til, and then Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Guys like Francis Schaeffer, John Frame, and others. What, what you'll see if you've read them is you'll see that this creator-creature distinction is fundamental for understanding how we're engaging with the world. It's fundamentally one of recognizing God is God and we are not. And everything takes its shape from that most basic fact. It's a distinction that begins in Genesis 1, and it runs throughout the entire Bible. Uh, God has within himself all perfections, no need of anything to supplement himself. Nothing completes God. He is is self-contained and complete within himself. It's what we talk about when we talk about the aseity of God. The aseity, the self-existent, Uh, independent God. He has no need of anything outside of himself to complete himself. And Pastor Rob, just a couple of weeks ago, he preached on John 1 on that very fact. God does not need us. God does not need his creation to be complete within himself. The triune God is who he is as a self-contained, independent, uh, self-existent, non-contingent being. And so, uh, that's fundamental. If you turn over with me to Acts chapter 17. Last week we looked at 1 Peter 3, kind of the locus classicus of, you know, telling us that we're called to be uh, apologists. Acts 17 is a passage where we see apologetics in action. Acts 17. Paul here, he is in Athens. So oftentimes, Paul was interacting with Um, Jewish people who had an understanding of the scriptures, right? They knew the Old Testament, and so he's basically taking them from from Genesis all the way through to Christ and showing them that Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures. But here, Paul is in Athens talking to unbelievers. These are people who were Stoics. They were philosophers, um, many of whom wouldn't have had access and known the Old Testament scriptures necessarily. But notice what Paul said beginning in verse uh, verse 22, Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, 
yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We'll just stop there. So in another session, we'll, as I said, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about God as creator versus some of this, the evolutionary theory of origins. But notice there that Paul says everything falls under one of two categories. The creator and thus needing nothing, right? Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't live in a temple made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, and here's the other category, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there is an independent, um, self-existent being, the triune God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and then there are creatures upon whom, or who depend upon him for life and breath and everything. So you depend on God right now to sustain you. The fact that you're breathing in and out is actually due to the fact that the creator is continuing by his personal act of providence to give you breath in your lungs. And so this is, this is the most fundamental distinction. And as we think about from him come life and breath and everything, well, we have to think about it in terms of knowledge as well. As we think about our knowledge, about what is true. Uh, the foundations for knowing what is true. How is it that we come to know anything and know it with certainty? How can we know that, that something is true? Well, we must have it then revealed to us. And we must have it revealed to us from a source that has all knowledge. Right? For, and that's, that's the key. God himself, as the creator, he has all knowledge of all the facts. Of course, we don't, right? We're limited. We have, we have knowledge of certain things, but that knowledge is derived from God. And so, uh, only, the, only God, the creator, has all knowledge of the facts, and therefore our knowledge is always derivative of his. We were created, as some have said, to think God's thoughts after him. To think God's thoughts after him. God made Adam and Eve in his image not to live independently of God, but in submission to his special word revelation. So even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve received special revelation. Well, well Adam received it directly from the Lord, and Adam was then to share it with his wife, right? But Adam received direct special revelation from the Lord, how he was to operate in this world, be fruitful and multiply. That's a direct, special revelation of God explaining to Adam the purpose of his life. Adam wouldn't have understood that outside of God speaking to him. And so, if we are to order our lives properly, um, we must do so then with a conscious reflection and submission to God the Creator and His uh, divine revelation. Now, this is an important point. Um, though the creator-creature dis- creator distinction is always maintained, the triune God as Lord over all also relates to his creation in a personal way. And this is, this is the amazing thing, one of the very uh, fundamental distinctions of biblical Christianity is that we speak of the transcendence of God. So we're not pantheists saying God is somehow mixed with his creation and that you know, there's this kind of chain of being that we can work ourselves up into degrees of godhood. No, no, there's, there's a fundamental distinction. God is God. He is a being of his own, and we are not. And yet, there's a creator-creature relation. And you saw that even in, um, in Acts 17. Right? The very fact that he gives life and breath and everything, there's this personal uh, benevolence of God towards his creatures. And he made, verse 26, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the Lord is, as I said, the Lord has put you here at at this place, at this time, for a reason. And that fundamental reason is to honor him, to glorify him. But the Lord is very involved in his creation. Now that doesn't change his essence, um, but he is, he does relate to his creatures in a personal, even covenantal way. Adam and Eve, in the, in the cool of the day, what were they doing? Well, they were walking with God in the garden. 
Right? There, was a, there was an unhindered fellowship that they enjoyed with God, this, in, a, in a proper sense, a personal covenantal relationship. And that is something that then uh, is just amazing when you think of the transcendence, the holiness of God, his otherness, and yet that he would relate to you in a personal way, even as a father, Christ as a brother, and the Holy Spirit as a comforter and helper. It's very personal. Now, all of this sounds quite philosophical, but as I said, what it fundamentally means is that the creature is under the authority of God and cannot escape him. He owns us, as it were, as his creatures. So if we're going to live in his world, we have to live by his rules. We've got to think his thoughts after him if we are to live consistently and even joyfully in this world. And so as we defend the faith, the work of apologetics, as we proclaim the gospel, the work of evangelism, this means that we cannot do so independently of the God who is, to steal uh, from Schaefer, the God who is there, the God who exists and who has revealed himself to us. He is there and he is not silent. And so our apologetics can't set that to the side and say, well, we're going to just pretend like we can argue with a non-Christian, you know, as though God has not spoken and just from reason our way to, to God. No, no, no. We live in God's world. He is there and he is not silent. And so we have an obligation then to submit to that and then to speak with those convictions and bring those to bear on others. So it is then the lordship and supremacy of God overall, which we saw back in uh, Luke chapter 5, Peter had to learn, you know, the supremacy, the omnipotence of Christ, the creator Lord, and, and from that, then the Lord called him as the Lord to follow him. So that's the first, the creator-creature distinction. At this rate, I ain't going to get through this whole thing, so um, we better get motoring. Second, the antithesis, the antithesis. So if you're still in Acts 17, you note there in verse 22, Paul said he perceived that in every way you are very religious, in verse 22. Um, And so from this, then he proceeds to point them to the creator-creature distinction and concludes with a call to repent and believe in the risen Christ later on. Now what's important here, what I want to make the point is, as a foundation for a biblical, apologetic, and evangelistic uh, methodology, you need to understand that everybody you meet falls into one of two categories. One of two categories. Everybody is, everybody is fundamentally religious, and Paul recognized that. Even the atheist is a religious person. They're a religious person. They are people who have a faith commitment to something, right? That faith commitment being to a belief in you know, materialism, naturalism, that God doesn't exist. But, but that is a fundamental religious commitment. So everybody you meet falls into a one of two religious categories. What this means is that there's no religious neutrality. There's no religious neutrality out there. You have people who are either unbelieving and therefore hostile to God and under his judgment, or they have been brought by divine grace to believe in Jesus, to receive him as Savior, and are now walking in humble obedience to him. You've got one of two categories that people exist in. Um, And that's, I mean, that's fundamentally one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus calls even Peter and his disciples to go make disciples, right? To go fish for men. Why? Because there's a recognition that there are people who are outside of Christ in need of his salvation. They're hostile to him. And so those who have been brought to salvation are then called to go uh, share the good news. So there's no in-between, which if you talk to, and we won't get into it today, but like the whole inclusivist thing, thinking that like the, the man on the island, they can believe in just some you know, general God and God accepts them for that. Well, no, no, no. There's no in-between. You're either, as Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me is actually against Christ. Now, when you talk in those categories, people are like, well, that's too much of a, 
that's too much of a rigid box to put people in. Right? You know, how dare you put people into a box? But I would submit to you that this is actually how God intends for us to view the world. So, for instance, in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, how does Paul, what, what kind of categories does Paul use to describe the condition of the world? What kind of, just anybody have an answer? What kind of categories does Paul use? Yeah, so there's, there's an enslavement to sin, and in particular, he focuses on two people, right? There's, there's the first man, Adam, and there's the second man, Christ. And he says you're either in Adam and therefore enslaved to sin and without hope, or you are in Christ and therefore justified, sanctified, and will be glorified, right? So, so God himself, in his word, puts people into these categories. This is the antithesis. People are either in Adam, thus guilty and condemned, or in Christ, justified by his righteousness. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's no, um, what this means, there's, there's no Switzerland, right? There's no Switzerland when it comes to the people in the world around you. There's no people who are just like, well, I'm kind of neutral. I'm, I'm sort of just trying to figure. No, you're either for Christ or you're against him. You're either under condemnation or you've been justified and are now um, accepted before God in Christ. So this religious neutrality is a myth that needs to be trimmed away, uh, cut, cut away, not just trimmed away, removed, even from our thinking. Otherwise, it's going to affect our practice. So whenever you're interacting with a person, you're interacting with them then as one who is either hostile to God and in need of salvation or one who is a believer and whom you can, you know, celebrate together with. So if we don't view the predicament of the world and the nature of man and sin properly, our solutions will be no solution at all, merely a temporary fix on a fatal wound. Faulty evangelistic and apologetic tactics are a result not of, under, of not understanding this antithesis and more specifically how pervasive sin's effects are. So what we're getting at here is the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption, which doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. Right? If that was the case, if the Lord removed all restraint, we'd be, like, there'd be blood in the streets all the time. It'd be, the, the world would literally self-destruct. So that is where God gives common grace to restrain people so that uh, the gospel can advance. But there is a, a fundamental uh, opposition that believers have to God. The biblical data describes believers as committed to attempting to live independently of God, which is a fancy way of saying non-Christians are religiously committed to do, as Isaiah said, going astray like sheep, each to their own way. That's the unbeliever's commitment. They're not submitting themselves to God, but rather living lives as their own way. So Ephesians, let's just look at a few different passages that kind of highlight this radical corruption. In the, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, in the futility of their, that Gentiles walk about in the futility of their minds and are darkened in their understanding. This is Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what that tells us that even the mind, even the mind, the ability for people to reason, it's actually been affected by the fall. So we can't, when we're talking with an unbeliever, we can't just assume, oh, we can just kind of ignore the biblical data and just sort of reason our way to God and salvation. No, actually, their minds are darkened. There's a fundamental commitment of, of darkness. They're in opposition and, and even intellectual confusion and futility in their thinking. Uh, another passage, Romans 1. Many of you know this foundational passage. Paul says in verse 18 that God's wrath 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their knowledge suppress the truth. So unbelievers reject God and his authority over them. And then in verses 21 and following, it says they became futile in their thinking, same as Ephesians 4. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then if you flip just a couple pages over to Romans 3, Paul quotes here from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and he describes that Jews and Gentiles are both under condemnation. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Here in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's not a caricature. That's not a caricature of unbelieving, unregenerate humanity. They're not seeking after God. They're not seeking after him. They're not neutral. They have no fear of God before their eyes, and it applies. Notice the universal language. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now consider the stark contrast between this and then what is true of Christians. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See the antithesis? Once you were darkness, you were darkened in your thinking, obviously under condemnation, but now you are light in the Lord. So the Christian and the non-Christian, what that means is that they live in two different kingdoms, under the control of two different masters, with two different kinds of minds, and therefore two different abilities, even in the, at the level of the will. They're in, one is enslaved to their sins, the other is free. One is hell-bent on their own destruction and the opposition to God's kingdom. The other lives under the authority of Christ and, is, and cares about the advance of his kingdom. So when you're defending the faith and bringing the good news of the gospel and evangelistic conversations, you must not approach your conversation with people thinking that there is some religious neutral territory that you share in common with non-Christians. There is a complete and fundamental ethical antithesis. So Richard Pratt, in his book, I mentioned it last week, uh, he cautions us, essentially Christians sometimes wrongly seek a common ground between the believer and the unbeliever upon which they may construct a case for the credibility of Christianity. So then, the question is, because I know this is what you're thinking, well, how then do we communicate with unbelievers, right? How do we communicate with the non-Christian? If there's no kind of common ground, how do we communicate effectively in our defense and promotion of the faith? Is it all futile since believers are so enslaved, darkened, and hostile to God? And the answer is that it's not futile, obviously, right? Otherwise, the Lord's not just sending us on a fool's errand to go do something that's absolutely futile. The antithesis is not ontological. So it doesn't, what it means is we don't share a fundamental different essence with unbelievers. We are created in the image of God. We share that in common. That is what we share in common, is our essence. And of course, as those who are created in the image of God, even there's a, there's a deep knowledge there that unbelievers have of God which they're suppressing. They're plugging their ears to it. But the image of God is not wiped away by the fall. However, the inability or the abilities as his creatures to image God properly are affected. But what we can do is we can communicate in words and through conversations because we all live in God's world. We share similar experiences with non-Christians. You know, sorrow, sickness, joy. You can, you can come to the non-Christian who's... who's um, you know, suffering the loss of a loved one. And you can come alongside them and sympathize with them in that experience. There's a shared commonality that you do have with them 
even in our experiences. And of course, from that, showing them then where there is hope. Um, so, so the image of God, that's the basis for communication of the truth. Um, and so we, can, we as Christians can then press the unbelievers to show them the inconsistencies of their own worldview. And that's fundamentally the case. Non-Christians, they're going to live inconsistently because getting back to the creator-creature distinction, they live in God's world. They can't escape him, though they're plugging their ears and trying to, right? And so as we come, we're showing them the inconsistencies of, well, how can you claim to have any objective standard for morality upon the basis of your own worldview? Well, you can't. It's self-defeating, right? And we'll look at some of those specific arguments in weeks to come. So that's the antithesis. There's lots more we could say about it, but I'm going to move on. Um, maybe I'll we'll talk about it in coming weeks and kind of flesh that out a little bit more. Third, third core conviction. Spiritual problems then require spiritual solutions. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. So if you go back to Luke chapter 5, The climax of the story, as I said, is that great catch of fish. So Jesus here is exercising his divine power as the creator over the creature, and he draws up into the nets this large catch of fish. And this is intentionally, it's a miracle, right? There's supposed to be wonder and awe, even as Peter is, you know, they're stunned as they see this great catch of fish. Now there's a detail, though, in the story that really helps to show us then the miraculous nature of this catch. So, what time of day are these men out fishing? What time of day are they out in the boats with Jesus? It's the middle of the day. Because right? earlier, um, Peter said, you know, we had been fishing all night. That's when the fishermen went out. They went out in the cool, when it was dark, because then, that's when the fish come up to the surface, right? During the heat of the day, the fish are at the bottom feeding. They don't come up. Any of you, if are, any of you that are fishermen know that it's, you know, it's basically an exercise in futility to go out there on a 30-degree day and try to fish in the heat of the day. That's, gonna be, that's not when the fish come up to bite. And yet, here they are in the middle of the day, and there's a great catch of fish. Right? So what we see here is the Creator Lord actually by His appointment causing these fish to move contrary to their nature. They're actually moving contrary to the, Their nature is to basically go down and feed at the bottom. But he's bringing them up here in the middle of the day. And I don't think that that's insignificant. Uh, again, it's, it's part of this entire miracle. And I think it points to then this miracle of regeneration, of biblical regeneration. What, what does God do by the power of the Spirit you think of the antithesis, people wholly opposed to him, darkened in their understanding. And their natural tendency is to plug their ears, to stiff-arm God, to cover their eyes, and to go their own way. But then, when the Lord gets a hold of somebody, and the Spirit regenerates, gives life to the heart, what happens? Well, the ears are opened, and they start listening to Jesus' words. Their eyes see the glory of Christ, the goodness of the gospel. And they start living as those who are new men. Well, well I think that's, that's fundamental for us as we think about the work that we're about. It is the requirement of uh, regeneration. We don't save people. The Lord saves people. He gives them new life. He, as it were, brings them up from the depths. Um, and only he can cause the souls of sinners who are by nature hostile, darkened, suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness and going astray, he can cause them to follow him. And so that's Jesus' point. The disciples, they're going to fish for men, but then the results, those are the Lord's prerogative. They cast the nets, but then the Lord brings up the fish. He brings them in to his nets. And Jesus even talks uh, in Matthew 13 about this kind of likens the advance of the kingdom to bringing fish of all kinds into the nets. So, um, yeah, so we see then the, the emphasis on spiritual problems require spiritual 
solutions. The Lord calls men and women, tax collectors, prostitutes, theists, atheists, rich and poor, slave and free, self-righteous and ashamed, all kinds of sinful people into his kingdom by his grace. So that's the, that's the fourth, or the third, fourth, fourth main conviction. Him we proclaim, that is the centrality of Jesus. So at the beginning there I pointed out that the crowds are pressing in to hear the word of God. Jesus was using, he, he wasn't using kind of the bait and switch tactic. He wasn't using gimmicks to attract people to him. He went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and doing miracles. Um, and so we see then that the central message of Jesus' life was that it all pointed to him, even his miracles, right? He wants what Jesus intends, and he's the only man in the world that's allowed to do this, is to put the spotlight on him, right? By his miracles and by his message, he's putting the spotlight on him saying, I am the one who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, I fulfill all these types, these prophecies, they all find their fulfillment, their culmination in me. And his miracles then attested to his uniqueness as the Messiah. So the spotlight is on Jesus intentionally. And, and he himself puts the spotlight on him. But I think that's fundamental, again, for us to, to remember as we go about the work of apologetics and evangelism. Because sometimes, in our discussions with people, it almost gets to the point where we where we start talking with non-Christians and it's like, well, we, we want them so badly to be, you know, let's say, for example, you're talking to an atheist. Well, we want them to, to not be an atheist, obviously, so let's try to just reason their way to be a theist. You know, let, let's, let's, let's try to convince them that there's some intelligent designer out there. Well, I think there is an intelligent designer. I think the, the fingerprints are all over it. And we can look at it. But the point is not to to reason them to a point of that they're convinced about theism. Theists go to hell. Theists go to hell. It doesn't matter if you believe that a God exists. Jesus calls people to repent and believe and follow him. Right? There's a specific person. There's a specific object of our faith. Again, this cuts against what's called the inclusivist model, which basically says, uh, you know, there's people out there who don't know God. They've never heard about Jesus. So God is going to save them, sure, on the basis of Jesus' work, but he's going to save them even though they don't have a, a conscious faith in Christ. Though they're not looking to the man, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of their sins, God will save them anyway. But that's not true. Jesus points them to himself, to his person and his work. And so Paul and other places, the apostles, right? Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. The, the centrality of our message is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfilled all these promises. He is the Son of God, the true Adam, the obedient man, the one who fulfilled all righteousness, and the one who has been raised from the dead. And so... That is, that is central to our apologetic methodology. If we're going to give a defense of the truth, it must be a truth that points them to the specific person of Christ. We can't set aside, uh, we can't set aside this fundamental fact. So, again, if you flip over to um, Acts 17, we're kind of going back and forth here. Acts 17, you'll see there that Paul, so he begins, he comes and says like, yeah, you guys have this, this idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you that this God that you're worshiping in, in ignorance, you're ac he's actually the creator, Lord. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Notice what he does at the very end of his discussion, of his defense of the faith, uh, beginning in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
And then, of course, some, some mocked him for this, and others said, well, well, we'll listen to you a little bit more on it. But what you see here is that Paul, he does not, he does not set aside his Christian commitments. He does not set aside his conviction that Jesus is raised from the dead, even when he's talking to these unbelievers who have really never heard much about Jesus. He doesn't just argue them to theism. He says, you need to repent and embrace the risen Christ because there's a day of judgment coming. Right? So it's speci- the focal point of his message is always Jesus and what he's done and the fact that we owe him allegiance and that he alone can save us from the wrath to come. So Paul assumes the fact of the resurrection. He does not set aside his Christian convictions in, ho- in order to win people. He proclaims Christ and, said, and, and basically summons them to repentance. So I think that's a, that's a methodology often that we, in our apologetic strategies, we, we forget. We don't want to just reason and talk philosophically with non-Christians about the existence of God and teleological argument, cosmological argument, all these kinds of things. What they must do, what's necessary, is that they must repent. They've got to turn from their waywardness, from their lawlessness, from their rebellion. And they need to trust in the risen Christ before it's too late. And, and so, as we, as we consider then going out and talking with people, we can't set aside our Christian commitments uh, under the Lordship of Christ. And, and only get people kind of halfway there, so to speak. And then finally here, a fifth commitment, a fifth uh, core commitment is that God uses means. God uses means. So, of course, in Luke 5, Jesus is calling his disciples to go and fish for men. Uh, he told Peter, cast out, you know, set out into the deep and let down the nets. Again, this parable, this illustration of the kind of work that they were going to be about. But we see there that though the, uh, the bringing in of the fish, so to speak, or bringing in of the harvest, bringing in of, of souls into the kingdom of God is God's work, he actually uses human instruments. He actually uses human instruments. Many of you have heard of William Carey, father of, uh, who's often called the father of modern missions, Carey lived in the 1700s in England. Uh, he was, he was a, a founder of the Baptist Missionary Society. Carey was sent to India to evangelize the, the heathen over there. And during this time in England, the particular Baptists, that is Calvinistic Baptists, were embroiled in a controversy over Calvinism versus hyper-Calvinism. And without getting too much into it, the hyper-Calvinists essentially argued that well, since God elects some to salvation, and since it's his work anyway, there's not an urgency then for us to give this universal call of the gospel, a universal summons to repent. But Carey and others like Andrew Fuller resisted that unbiblical conclusion. They both believe that God elected some before the foundation of the world for salvation, and that it was not due to any foreseen faith or merit in them. They believe that all whom God has chosen will come to believe and be saved. However, they also saw in the scriptures that God uses means, primarily the proclamation of the word and prayer, to bring about this miraculous work of regeneration. So God is the the primary cause of salvation, but he uses secondary causes or, or means to accomplish those purposes. And, that, and that's his prerogative. That's how he's decided this world is going to work. Right? So, in, in response to this tendency of some to downplay the urgency of taking the gospel, Carey wrote that famous book with a, a very, very, very lengthy title, you know, Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. And then there's a subtitle under that about three sentences long. Um, but the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this next week, even in the, the role of reason and, and argument and how that works itself out. But I just want to close here with, with three then brief applications, three b- brief applications taken from 
J.I. Packer's book, and Jared said he was going to bring Packer's book, and I don't see it because I'm going to give away one of Packer's books. I'll do that next week. Um, these, are, these are three applications taken from J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, so in view of these kind of core commitments, first, we should be bold. We should be bold. We're not surprised when people ignore the truth because we know that they are dead in their sins. But we also can be bold because we know that through the, the work of the Spirit, conversion um, is possible. What is impossible for man is possible with God. And we're bold because the risen Lord has commissioned us to go. So Packer says, You are not on a fool's errand. You are not wasting either your time or theirs. You have no reason to be ashamed of your message or half-hearted and apologetic in delivering it. You have every reason to be bold and free and natural and hopeful of success. For God can give his truth and effectiveness that you and I cannot give it. So boldness. Second, we must be patient. God's timing is not ours, so we don't need to panic. There is an urgency about the work, even in view of this appointed day of judgment. So we, so we do that. There's, there's a proper urgency and earnestness, but we are not to be hurried and impatient again because we recognize this is the Lord's work. We're mere weak vessels we take the gospel, but the Lord has to give the results. So we don't use, you know, whatever gets decisions, pragmatic approaches to our apologetic and evangelistic strategy. Again, Packer says, the truth is that the work of evangelizing demands more patience and sheer stickability, more reserves of persevering love and care than most of us 21st century Christians have at command. So boldness, patience, and third, we must be prayerful. Prayer is an indication of how much we believe the conversion of sinners to be God's work or ours. Packer basically said, it's a confession of our impotence and need. It's an invoking of the mighty power of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So only God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, on the basis of the work of the incarnate Christ, can give new hearts to those who are hard and dead set against him. Packer concludes, God will make us pray before he blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on God for everything. And then, when God permits us to see conversions, we shall not be tempted to ascribe them to our own gifts or skill or wisdom or persuasiveness, but to his work alone. And so we shall know whom we ought to thank for them, there are two sides to the evangelistic commission. It is a commission not only to preach, but also to pray. Not only to talk to men about God, but also to talk to God about men. So we must pray. We must pray. I'm going to open up just for, we've got about five minutes here. Any questions or comments, clarification? Darren, yep. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a certain way, and you you can, as I said, there there is a basis which you can talk with unbelievers about the facts that are out there, right? Um, the problem is, is like, and we're going to talk about evidences and stuff in a future session, but the way that they're going to interpret them is, is based on their, commi their commitment to independence, right? So you're not going to get very far just arguing back and forth. What they need, as I said, is they need the work of the Spirit to open their eyes, right? And, and I think that that is where it's, it's key that we actually bring, we bring the unbeliever to the point of this is who Christ is and his demands of you. Um, rather than just kind of talk, talking abstractly about stuff out there, because who they need is Christ, first of all, and then then things are going to start to make more sense. So, yeah, you can talk with. It's not like it's sinful to talk with them about the facts that are out there, but it, it ends up just being going in circles. I find right. 
often those arguments, what they, they're more beneficial for interactions with Christians, right? Because you, you have a common basis there of your minds are both open and submissive to the truth. And so, yeah, you can look at the fine details and the, and the different arguments. And what it does is, is the evidence, it, it confirms, it solidifies your confidence in the truth, right? Presuppositional approach. So presupposition just may, basically means um, what are the kind of the ultimate religious commitments that people assume when they're going, like as they're living through life. So as I said, it's the, the antithesis. The unbeliever assumes that they can live in God's world in their own way, right? So they're committed to a, what we would say is a presupposition of independence or rebellion against God, right? And that's going to shape how they're going to interpret the facts of the world around them, how they interpret events like a pandemic or whatever, right? They're not going to see the hand of God in that. They're just going to see fate or whatever. So presuppositional just basically means, and we'll talk a little bit more in coming weeks too, um, an understanding of that people are committed to certain assumptions about God and the world, themselves, their needs, that then shape how they're interacting with people and interpreting the facts around them. So when you're talking, when you're dealing with people then, you're getting to the heart of their basic assumptions, right? Their, their basic commitments. What are you committed to? And you're, re, and you're showing them then the inconsistencies of, of trying to live in God's world on, on their own authority, right? Classical approach would be more like um, it places more of an emphasis on, on reason and, and argument so that you start from kind of these different evidences out there, um, different arguments for the existence of God, teleological, we'll talk about this too, teleological argument, cosmological argument, and you're sort of reasoning from, you know, basic building steps up to theism, you know, God exists, and, and then maybe if you have a chance, get to Christ and the gospel kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's more of an emphasis than on, on kind of finding some common ground where you can reason with a Christian, whereas the presuppositional method says, well, the common ground is not in our reason. It's in the image of God, but there is a, there's a hostility here that I recognize that then they need the gospel to awaken them to it. Kind of thing. We'll talk, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about reason, the role of reason and argument. So that'll probably clarify some of it. Yeah, so the question is, isn't often the case that the Lord kind of takes people through steps and then brings them to a point of faith? Yeah, it is. It is often the case. My argument, though, is what is the, what is the methodology put forward by Jesus and the apostles? They don't just kind of reason to a general theism. They, they actually say, like, this is what's true. You're rejecting God, and, and life doesn't make sense because of it, Right? and you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So I find with the classical arguments is that it often gets very philosophical and stuck in just kind of back and forth, hashing it out like, oh, well, look at the facts around you. Well, yeah, you can look at these facts, you can look at these facts, and they have their reasons for not believing, rather than actually bringing them to the point of dealing with their ultimate commitments. But you're right. Yeah, there's, the Lord often, you know, there's a period of maybe even what some Puritans call awakening, right? There's an awakening there that, well, the Lord seems to be stirring something in their heart and that they're, they're inquiring about these things and they're thinking about them and then, you know, he gets a hold of them and saves them kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's not like, it's not always like the Paul on the road to Damascus where you're one moment killing Christians, the next moment singing with them, right? Well, we'll talk more about some of this stuff in coming weeks. Um, let me just close in prayer and then we'll get ready for service here. Father, as we think on these things, we do want to be committed to your word and to your methods. So we ask that you would help us. Help us to be uh, bold, patient, and prayerful 
even as we consider this task, we, we thank you for the great privilege of inviting us into this work. But we confess our weakness and our inability and just even our fears as we interact with those around us. So embolden us. Give us the boldness to speak as we ought to speak. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.